Well, it's been an exciting week here at the Times Union Newsroom. We had a number of popular breaking stories that ranged from swarms of insects to an A-list actress saving the day. Not a typical week, but here we are. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Allegedly, members uh, of the activist group or their supporters released a number of Madagascar hissing cockroaches into the courtroom. Pride Month celebrations are underway. We'll talk to Capitol Pride Center Executive Director Nathaniel Gray. I'm so excited to see a sea of LGBTQ plus faces and their family members and allies. And we'll learn a little bit about a local cricket league trying to grow the sport in the capital region. Cricket is not just a um, game, it's a religion. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. Hello and welcome to our weekly headline segment. We're here with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top news this week that appeared in print and online. We'll start with the first gubernatorial debate on the Democratic side. Uh, What happened there this week? Well, Governor Kathy Hochul, Tom Suozzi, a member of Congress, and Jamani Williams uh, met in their first three-member debate. Suozzi and Williams met last week, but Hochul did not attend. No knockout punches were thrown. As expected, Suozzi generally uh, tried to go after the governor sort of from the right, though he castigated her for her past support of gun rights. She was uh, uh, supported by the NRA back when she was a local official and a member of Congress out of Western New York. She has changed uh, many of her positions on guns and, of course, only on uh, Monday signed a significant package of legislation passed in the, you know, the final weeks of the legislative session on gun control that, among other things, raised the age to 21 by which uh, you can purchase a semi-automatic rifle. But um, Swazi was uh, hitting her hard, as was Williams, for many of these uh, past positions that she says she has evolved beyond. She actually tried to turn that into something of uh, a strength, as you were, a little political jujitsu, in the sense that um, she was saying that we need to have more public officials who examine their past positions and change them to meet changing factors and uh, and events in the news. And of course, when it comes to gun violence, we've had a lot of that. Now, uh, there will be another debate coming up next Thursday. And I uh, am happy to note 
that this will be co-sponsored by the Times Union and WNBC and uh, other media entities. Uh, I will be one of the questioners and work on that debate is proceeding apace. All right. Well, I look forward to talking about that on next week's podcast. All right. Let's go to a courthouse in Albany where one of those stories that comes along every once in a while just, well, I'll just let you explain it. What happened at the Albany City Courthouse this week? So Rob Gavin reported on um, a very weird scene in Albany City Court on Tuesday where a number of protesters who a couple of weeks ago were charged related to an anti-eviction protest uh, down at the state capitol were making a court appearance. A woman named Kleana Lightborn, who is a fairly well-known local Black Lives Matter activist and until this week, a state Senate employee was there to support these activists and was using her cell phone to tape the proceedings, which you are not supposed to do without a judge's prior approval. Court officials uh, tried to stop her from uh, getting footage. She refused. And as court officials were distracted, allegedly members uh, of the activist group or their supporters released a number of Madagascar hissing cockroaches into the courtroom that were apparently packed along with lettuce. I know that Madagascar hissing cockroaches are among your favorite hissing cockroaches, Jess. Um, Quite but yeah. the, the, uh, the court, however, was, uh, was less pleased to see these critters uh, crawling around all over the place. The courtroom had to be closed down. Pest control people were brought in. Ms. Lightborn is now facing uh, a felony charge, and uh, and she is now out of a job with the state legislature. Well, I have to say it's been an interesting two weeks, a very nature-themed two weeks. Last week, there was a bear in Albany, and this week, cockroaches. So I wonder what next week will bring. Well, we're, we're not even discussing the uh, spongy caterpillars story. They're apparently all over Saratoga County. That's a, another great story. Clearly... Creepy crawly critters could be its own beat in the capital region right now. And not one that I would willingly take on, mind you. I'm not volunteering for that. Anyway, let's move on to Rensselaer County now, where a Troy councilwoman has pled guilty to federal criminal charges in uh, a kind of a widespread ballot fraud uh, situation over in Rensselaer County. Can you tell us more about what happened there? Yeah, for several months, um, uh, Brendan Lyons uh, and others have been reporting on the state and federal investigation into potential ballot fraud in Rensselaer County. And the first visible fruits of that investigation um, played out on Wednesday when Kim Ash McPherson, who was a member of the Troy City Council, pleaded guilty to a felony uh, related to fraudulently submitting absentee ballots in last year's primary and the general elections as she sought re-election to her post on, on the city council. Um, in the kind of detail that has got to send uh, tremors of fear through the hearts of any potentially misbehaving uh, elected officials or politicos in Rensselaer County, Ash McPherson, this is just a wonderful detail that Brendan caught, as she was in this sparsely populated uh, courtroom making her guilty plea, she turned around and waved to the two FBI agents who are running the investigation, and they kind of 
waved back, didn't say anything, <laughs> which, you know, if you're wondering if potentially she might be cooperating, uh, that could be an indication, but, you know, maybe not. Uh, we shall see where this investigation goes, but uh, we are told that it is still um, very, very active. I should note that on on Thursday, uh, Ash McPherson, who, according to her plea agreement, had 30 days to resign from the city council, tendered her resignation. So she is now ex-councilwoman Ash McPherson. All right. Well, stick to Capital Confidential and TimesUnion.com for more on that. All right. One more story to discuss here. And when I said earlier that that was it for our discussion of fauna and nature, I sort of lied because this last story uh, is, is a pretty special one and it involves a dog and a celebrity. What happened there this week? Chelsea Blackwell, an Albany resident, on Monday lost her little dachshund um, named Blue, uh, who she's had for 15 years, which is a good long life for a dog. And she was um, walking around uh, what's known as uh, the parking lot district uh, downtown, right by the Greyhound Station in downtown Albany, just down the hill from the Capitol, and saw a large you know, group of people down there and asked if anybody had seen a little dog. And she was told, yes, and we'll call her. And who came out with the dog about an hour later uh, in showing up in a car, but Hilary Swank, double Oscar winning actress who is in Albany filming a movie. And apparently Ms. Blackwell asked for an autograph and Swank suggested, let's just take a selfie which was posted to Facebook along with Blue, who looks very happy to be uh, returned to his owner. And it's a it's just a very nice story. We've got, you know, we've had so many film productions in Albany, especially during during the warm months. And it's nice to know that uh, the production and uh, especially the the stars who are performing in them are also here to help out the community, too. So it was just a really good feel good story. Yes, that was great. And if you want to see the picture, head over to timesunion.com or check out our social media channels. It is there. All right, Casey, thank you so much. We will check back in with you next week. What critter will it be next week, Jess? Everybody place your bets now. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. June is Pride Month, and in-person gatherings and celebrations of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer identity are happening around the region for the first time in two years. The last Pride Festival held in Albany's Washington Park was in 2019, and at that time event organizers counted 30,000 people in attendance. Over the next two weeks of this podcast, we'll hear from leaders of LGBTQ advocacy organizations around the region. This week, I chatted with Capital Pride Center Executive Director Nathaniel Gray, who's in his first year in the role. Here's some of our conversation. What are you looking forward to most that you've been um, working on and planning for Pride this month? I'm so excited to see a sea of LGBTQ plus faces and their family members and allies and supporters. And, and so I think that that weekend, that festival is just going to be um, the culmination of what, A, I know has been a lot of hard work since I, so, I mean, I was on the job 
five or six days before we started talking about all of the things that are happening next weekend. So I know that uh, we worked really hard to get there. And I also know that the community at large is really excited about the chance to come out and celebrate again. So I think I think that big weekend is, is probably what I'm most looking forward to. Now, are you, you yourself, are you new to the Capital Region or had you lived here before you took on the executive director position? Yes. Moved up here in 2019. So uh, my social work background down in, um, in New York City, which is where I've lived the last um, almost 20 years. I kind of lived my whole adulthood there. I focused in on work primarily with homeless or marginally housed LGBTQ youth. Um, doing clinical casework with them, as well as some grant writing and program evaluation for um, some of the largest nonprofits in the country that do that work. And then came up here and had the opportunity, um, which is what brought me up here in 2019, to work with the state government as a fellow writing policy for the Office of Children and Family Services, focused on none other than LGBTQ youth who are experiencing um, homelessness, uh, as well as LGBTQ youth in foster care and in juvenile justice. Of course, like a lot of New York City folk, I said, that's that. I'll be here the two years that I have to, you know, be here for two years and then I'm going home. But a couple of things happened. You know, I don't know if you heard, but COVID occurred. (laughs) And... Um, which means that it feels weird to say I'm new to the capital region when I moved here in, in January of 2019, but I am new because I couldn't go anywhere or meet anybody for two years. Through COVID, um, through that work, I came to a bit of a realization. And that realization was that my, my experience growing up as a, as a kid in a very small town in the Midwest, both of my parents military, um, in a very conservative Bible Baptist church, that experience is clearly something that I needed to to heal from. I talk about it often in my training work. And so I moved to a place like New York City because I didn't know it before I moved there. But once I was there, realized that it was a safe place for me to, to express myself as who I am, for me to walk up to someone that I thought was attractive and say, hey, you're a guy and I think you're attractive. And that's normal, um, as opposed to feeling terrified every time I would feel some feelings in Ohio. Then I moved up here for this job. And even though it's the most I've ever worked on LGBTQ things, it's the deepest I've ever focused in on these issues. I also, for the first time in my entire adulthood, didn't feel comfortable holding hands with someone in public because I was made to not feel comfortable. If I held hands with someone at the Crossgates Mall, for example, we would get stared at. That did not happen to me for 20 years in New York City, but here I'm getting stared at like I'm a like I'm a, a zoo animal, you know, like I'm some bizarre new thing. What it made me realize, and the reason that I wanted to stick around this area and not just move right back down to my safe little haven, is because it's unfair. It's unfair not just to me, but to all of the queer people who live in the capital region. That a 16-year-old gay kid living in New York City can express herself, himself, themselves, and date, and and probably feel pretty safe to do so. And that that's not even what a 38-year-old gay man is experiencing in the capital region. How do we fix that? You know, and how can I stick around to, to help fix that? That's a big part of why I also wanted to take the job and, and step into this kind of work was because of sticking around up here and realizing that if I'm going to stay, that I, I have, have to do everything I can, even if it's just selfishly 
to make this as safe a region for LGBTQ plus people as possible. Now, what are some of the main issues that you've been focusing on advocacy wise um, vis-a-vis this community and the state? I'll, I'll start with LGBTQ youth. I've advocated on behalf of the experiences of LGBTQ youth very clear to me because of the experiences I had growing up. I was called that lovely F-A-G-G-O-T word the first time mm-hmm. I was I was seven years old. Um, mm-hmm. I was called it every day after that until I graduated high school. Um, mm-hmm. I was called it, you know, four weeks ago walking down the street in Albany from a passing really? car. Yeah. So one of the big issues that I'm really pushing on is that LG, if that's happening to me four weeks ago, and I'm a, a very visible queer person, I have, you know, currently my hair is trans pride flag colored blue and, and pink and white, and mm-hmm. uh, I wear nail polish, and I don't think I should have to tone down my, my shine for everybody else. But what that also means is that people can, can choose to target me pretty easily. So if that's happening to me, I have very little faith that it's not happening to a child in Amsterdam, a child at a middle school in Clifton Park, a child at a high school um, in Saratoga Springs. You know, it's it's happening. It's happening in Rensselaer County. It's happening in Albany County. It's happening. So um, and I can attest to the fact that when I go and speak in schools, which is something that we do at the Pride Center a lot, we do a lot of school based work with um, our community partner, Glisten, that also does this kind of work. We, when we go into schools, I ask every single time, raise your hand as a student if in the last year you've heard that word on school property during school hours. And I promise you, every single student raises their hand every time I ask mm-hmm. a question. Mm. Nothing has changed when it comes to those kinds of things. So I advocate strongly for queer kids in spaces like schools or systems of care where they are beholden to the, the policy, the adults in the space. You know, we just saw an example out in, in Tully, which is a town just outside of Syracuse, where the mm-hmm. principal of a high school tried to silence a gay senior who wanted to write in a senior yearbook that he was proud to have come to terms with who he was and to be a proud gay man. And that was his biggest accomplishment in life. And they censored it. And then they lied about the policies that were sent the reason that it was being censored. So I advocate often around the fact that that kid, his senior year now, he's had to learn how to file an official complaint with the Division of Human Rights with the state of New York and get a lawyer and advocate at school board meetings. That should not have to be the case. 10% of everyone everywhere is LGBTQ, and we should all be allowed to be proud of that. Stay tuned next week when we'll talk to In Our Own Voices CEO Tandra Legrone about that organization's work focusing on the local BIPOC LGBTQ community. After the break, we'll learn more about the rules of cricket. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. 
All right, time to move on to a little sports here, specifically cricket. It's the second most popular spectator sport globally. Only soccer or football tops it. It's not as widely played in the United States, though, overall, as it is elsewhere in the world. But here in the capital region, it's definitely growing. As you may know from previous episodes of this podcast, I'm more of a winter sports person, so I don't really know much about the rules of cricket. I know it's a little like baseball, but I do know many people who adore playing it and that it has a really fascinating history. Times Union sports reporter Abigail Rubel recently spent some time with players in the Capital District Cricket Association, so I jumped at the chance to connect with her to learn more about the sport. What is cricket exactly? How would you describe the sport? Cricket is most analogous to baseball, but it's very different and it's much older than baseball. In cricket, you have two batsmen who stand on opposite sides of a pitch and a bowler throws the ball or bowls the ball towards one of the batters, and the batters then have to hit the ball and run and switch places before they're out. There are many, many, many very obscure rules, so much so that one of the people I spoke with said that even after decades of playing, he doesn't even know all the finer points of everything. Um, so it's a very complicated sport, but in a nutshell, that's, that's sort of what it is. Now, tell me about the cricket field. Like, what is, you know, is it like a baseball field or a baseball diamond or is it like a soccer pitch? Like, what is it like? What do you need in a field to play cricket? So one of the things that was interesting to me about cricket is it's much more three-dimensional, so to speak, than baseball. So baseball, you have the, the diamond, right? And anything outside the foul lines, you don't play. Cricket is 360 degrees. So not only do you have the two batsmen on either end of this pitch, but you have fielders in a circle all around them and there are different rings, you know, marked out by cones or whatever. So if you hit, if you hit it out of the park, what would be a home run in baseball In cricket, it's a six or something. You get six runs for that. And, Hmm. but it can be hit anywhere in this 360 degree circle, not necessarily, you know, between these foul poles. As I was telling my story, everybody pretty much same. You play as a kid in the neighborhoods and you grow into schools, colleges. So they're well connected. Before you even immigrate to this country, you must have played about 10, 15 years of game. So as soon as you come here, you want to find that game first, right? So that's how all these people come together and they start playing the game. Tell me about the Capital District Cricket Association. Okay, so currently there are 13 hardball teams and 15 softball teams uh, for a total of about 450, 500 players. That's a massive league. How many years have they been doing this? They started in the mid-2010s, 2015-ish. There, there had been cricket in the area before. There were teams playing all over. But the Capital District Cricket Association kind of brought them all together into one organization to make it easier to get fields, um, build pitches, stuff like that. Southeast Asia, not just India, but Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, a lot of people who are from that nations who participate here. And we have this, this ground and a good number of teams that practice on this ground are actually from Guyana. Tell me about the players. 
Most of the players are immigrants or, you know, children of immigrants who were exposed to cricket as kids, who played it as kids. Apparently, they have a pretty big contingent of RPI students uh, who play. There used to be an RPI team. There isn't one anymore, but there are a lot of RPI students who play in the league. Other than a love of cricket, you know, people from all over, all walks of life, all ages, but but mostly people who were exposed to cricket in their youth. And what they're trying to do is sort of grow the sport in the area, bring in people who didn't grow up in India, you know, who weren't exposed in that way. You know, there is a saying in India, cricket is not just a um, game, it's a religion. That's what they say. It doesn't matter whether you're Muslim, Hindu, Christian, whatever. But cricket goes all above all. You know, that's how it is. You know, these guys, a lot of them live, breathe cricket, watch it whenever they can. It's important, you know, not only as a way to, to stay fit and active and as a sport, but it's, it's a cultural institution. One of the guys I talked to was one of the founders of the CDCA, and he's currently on the board of advisors, Ashok Adekapala. He's also a youth coordinator for USA Cricket. Um, and so he's been really involved in trying to grow the sport, especially in local schools and bring more kids into the fold. We see a lot of progressive things happening in this game. 2024, the Cricket World Cup is going to be co-hosted with uh, West Indies in USA. And 2028, LA Olympics, potentially cricket is going to be added to LA Olympics. So there's a, there's a lot of growth opportunities, right? So it's, it, it's a right time if you're like a, a elementary or a middle schooler to pick up this sport and give a good five, six years, you know, there is a chance. Now, is there, for this league, is there any sort of like playoffs or championship do they have that structure or they play year-round uh they play in the summer they practice year-round um so in the summer there are different leagues and kind of different styles of cricket so there's hardball and softball as i mentioned earlier and then there's the length of the game varies so right now they're playing t10 cricket which is you get 10 overs in an inning um and an over is uh six pitches because in, in traditional cricket, it was, you know, five days long. Um, and you'd take a tea break in the middle of every day. So delightful. <laughs> I would I love so that. Too. <laughs> but, you know, obviously for, for the modern age, for TV and for weekend leagues, you're, you're not going to be devoting five days to one game. So mm-hmm. they've shortened the game. So the T10 is what they're playing now. And then they're going to go into T20 uh, in a couple of weeks here, which is 20 overs. So, okay, so if somebody, you know, maybe heard this interview or saw something around the community um, and was interested in playing, you know, what's what's kind of the avenue for that? Yeah, so I actually asked Ashok about that, and he said, you know, anyone who wants to play, they will, you know, just reach out to them. They'll train you. They'll teach you the, the basics. The basics are not super hard to to pick up. But obviously, the the finer points of the sport will take you a while. But but just reach out to them, and they'll they'll get you set up. We train anyone who wants to get trained. I mean, you know, that's the beauty of the sport, right? It's it's a it's a diverse, it's welcoming. I would rather see a lot of uh, you know American-born kids take up this sport. I don't know if I'd be very good at playing cricket, but I definitely want to watch it after learning more about it. And also check out timesunion.com for some photos and video of a local cricket match. 
All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Shayla Cologne, and Abigail Rubel for their contribution to this episode.